Well, let's turn together to 2 Samuel. We'll be looking again this morning in chapter 1. If you were not with us uh, this past Sunday, we began uh, this the book of Second Samuel. We spent a lengthy time together studying First Samuel, the first part of this book, uh, last year, and then took a bit of a break from it as we considered some other things from God's Word. And then this past Sunday, we returned to it together and began began with the first 16 verses. And so this morning, we're going to pick up in verse 17. As David has learned of Saul's death, and we saw, uh, we saw last time that maybe even in a peculiar way that David seems to be saddened by this news. And we'll consider that again in some depth this morning. But that, that sadness, that uh, concern then is expressed in the verses that are before us beginning in verse 17. This is the song of David, and depending on the translation that you're looking at, it may be known as and referred to in the text as the bow, uh, that is the bow of David or the, 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 the song of David. It is David's lamentation, as you see there in verse 17, over Saul and Jonathan, his son. That is, he is, he is writing this song of lament because of their death. And so we're going to look and see this morning uh, what we can learn from it together. Before we read it, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, (coughs) open our eyes that we might see. God, use your word, your holy word, to change us and to fashion us into the image of Christ. And so we we pray that you would illumine us and uh, make us receptive to your word as you plant it deep in our our hearts this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Excuse me, I'm very sorry. And David says in verse 17, And David lamented this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan his son. And he said, It should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. He said, Your glory, O Israel, is slain in your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings, for there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, The bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. Now this song of David, this lamentation, 
It is more than merely an expression of personal grief. It is an expression both of personal grief and of corporate grief, if you will. Um, It was an important political act as David uh, calls and intends that this song not only be internalized and expressed sort of by him, this is not only a window into David's thought and concern, it is commanded that this song be published, that it be written in order that the um, that the children, the people of Judah, the children of Israel, that they might be able to read and be taught it. You see that there in verse 17. He wrote this lamentation and he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. So there's a corporate aspect to this lamentation. It is not merely uh, an expression of his personal grief. And it's important that we understand why it is that he would have wanted it published because it gives us great insight into what he was doing in, uh, in the verses, at least to some degree. So in publishing it, I think at least three things we can learn. One, he would have given an expression, uh, given expression to those grieved by the events that he would soon come to lead or be king over. In other words, as much as David is feeling uh, grieved by the situation, and we'll consider why again in a few moments, but by publishing his grief externally and publicly, then he is in some way giving a written expression, a biblical form of expression for these people to use in the grief that they feel. It's one of the wonderful benefits of God's word, isn't it? Particularly when we turn to the Old Testament, even for us today, that we can go to the Psalms and we can see where the people of God have been multiple times and often are grieved. For in this life, you will have trials and tribulations and difficulties and trouble, but I've overcome the world. Well, as we walk through the difficulties of this life, grief is one of the things that we will experience. And it is a great comfort to us when we turn back to, say, the Psalms and we see where God's people uh, grieved in a faithful way and in a biblical way. And to some degree, I think that's the expression that uh, he is giving the children of Israel here. Remember, this was a terrible day. This was a terrible day on a number of fronts, and we'll see that again in a moment. We'll consider some of those reasons again in a moment. But in the midst of their grief, I think David, as a good leader, wanted to lead them to grieve biblically and faithfully. And so he gives expression to their grief. Secondly, he provides historical and lasting proof for them and for us for all time that he assumed the throne innocently and with great integrity rather than through violence and corruption. It's important that we know and understand that he did not in any uh, inappropriate way. Remember, he had opportunities to take Saul's life, and he refused to raise his hand against the Lord's anointed. And when one, when one Amalekite came to the camp after Saul had been slain and taken his own life, one Amalekite came to David with his artifacts, with his bracelet and these things, and, and he offered them up with the story that he had killed Saul. And because he claimed and took credit to kill Saul, it was such an ab- abomination in David's eyes that David took his life. He executed him for uh, this action that he claimed to have done. And I, I think this psalm of this genuine grief, of the, in- the integrity that we find in it with 
I mean, there is incredible generosity and grace as he writes this song and he laments the death of Saul and of Jonathan, his son, and of what happened to Israel this day at Mount Gilboa. One of the things that it provides is a lasting, historical, absolute account of David's ascent to the throne over Israel. That it was not through violence, it was not through corruption, and it was not through sin. That he was grieved over Saul's death. And then thirdly, I think in some way not only does he give expression uh, to their grief and provide them a way to grieve biblically and language for that, he identifies with those that he has long been separated from in exile. Let's not forget that as... David has been on the run from Saul. He has been separated, has he not? He, in some, to some large degree, he has been set outside the camp. He has not been a part of God's people. He has not been in their corporate worship. He has not gathered with them to make offerings. He has been separated and exiled, as it were, from the people of God for more than a decade. And, and now, very shortly, he is going to assume the throne God has appointed him to. And, and I think in publishing this lamentation, he is identifying with the grief of God's people. He is in some way uh, showing them that while he may have been exiled under Saul's tyranny and on the run for his life and outside of the camp, he has not wavered in his love for Israel. He has not wavered in his concern, his deep concern for the things that ailed them and the things that bothered them, the things that they were concerned for. So he identifies with them. He gives expression to their grief, and he provides them and us for all time a historical account that he assumed the throne with great integrity. And as one pastor put it, as we consider David's grief in this, it is not just an emotional grief, but it was both emotional and intellectual. Uh, Ralph Davis would say that this song of David, this lamentation, is an expression, a biblical expression of thoughtful grief. Uh, And through this important, personal, and political, very careful expression of grief by David, we see a final contrast between the king that was and the king that is to be. There's a final contrast between Saul and his fallenness and his wickedness and David and his integrity and his appointment to the throne for David displays great virtue and integrity and generosity in this lamentation and in these verses and also and finally we are given an example we are given a an instruction if you will about how to grieve not only do we learn all of these things historically very practically if we will carefully consider David's Uh, song of lamentation here, we will find an example that is worthy of our emulation. Grief is something that you and I will most certainly experience in this life. Um, God's word promises the troubles and the difficulties of living in a fallen world, of being strangers in a foreign land, exiles in some way under the penalty of sin and death in, in, a, in a land that is dead and dying, corrupt and being corrupted, we are certain to experience grief in this life. And it may be the grief of loss, as was experienced here in Israel this day, perhaps the loss of a beloved spouse or the loss of a young child. 
Perhaps the loss of of a different kind, the loss of a a dream not realized or the loss of um, a job that was once loved and diligently performed. But you see that regardless of the form that it may take, Christians are sure to experience grief. And so it is very important that we learn to grieve in a way that honors God. Not, not to call to question his providence in our lives and his sovereign care for us. Not to question whether or not he has forgotten or forsaken us. In the midst of our grief, like Job, we must do all of these things and not sin. And I think David helps us with that this morning as he exemplifies and encourages biblical, faithful, God-honoring grief. And so that's going to be the that's going to be the direction of our consideration this morning with regard to this text. First, I want you to consider and see that David both exemplified and also encouraged the Israelites to mourn thoughtfully. To mourn thoughtfully. Um, he wants them to look back on the events that have taken place and to reflect and think carefully about them and how it happened. See, it would have been no secret about Saul's downfall. The children of Israel, when they experience this mighty defeat on Mount Gilboa and they hear the news that Saul, their leader, and Jonathan, his son, that they have fallen victim and they are slain on the mountain with the, those that were fighting in Israel... Uh, It it would have been no secret that not only had he fallen physically, but that this is the result of God's judgment upon his sin. And we know that because we're given that in the story in God's word. We know of the sin that he is, uh, his forsaking of God and his unwillingness to obey God and to follow and listen to God. That God had removed him from the throne and had promised these events would take place. And though the Israelites would not have had the full picture that you and I have, They certainly would not have been uh, ignorant of Saul's sin and wickedness. And so I think to some degree, David is asking them to think carefully that they might remember. Now let's let's look at the text here. He's using the language of memorial. Using the language of memorial. He begins, he says, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. In the high places, in a public sense. It is on display for all of you to behold. And when something is put up in the high place for you to see, it is done so intentionally lest we, lest we forget what has happened. And, and so the glory of Israel was slain on the high places, how the mighty have fallen. There's the refrain for this song. But then look at what he says in verses 20 and 21 particularly. Tell it not in Gath, do not publish it in the streets, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, that's the mountainside where the blood of Israel has been shed. Let there not be dew, nor rain upon you. Let your fields not bring forth fruit and grain that could be made as offerings. For the shield of the mighty, there it is again, was defiled. Saul and his, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. Do you, do you see what, he, what, what he's calling for here? He's calling for an acknowledgement of this public display of the devastating effects of sin that the Israelites be careful to remember this day and this result and the bitterness of defeat. Let it be memorialized, he says. 
Let not the waters, the refreshing rain, come and wash away the blood from Mount Gilboa. No dew to cleanse the earth. Let there be no replenishment. Let it stand forever, lest lest we forget. Do, Do you see the language of memorial? Why is it so important that they mourn thoughtfully and that they carefully remember? That now Israel's in political and economic ruin, feeling the pain of that. They are without a leader. They are, as we see here, being mocked on all sides by the pagans and by the enemies. Not only politically and economically ruined, but theologically as the God that was seen to be their protector and provider and preserver is being mocked in his inability to save them? Why is David asking them to think about these things and calling for them to memorialize it like this? I think it's because he wants them to never forget how bitter the cup was. Listen, one of the the sad truths of the human existence is that we, we, we forget quickly. We're prone to forget. When bad things happen, we want to wipe it from our memories. But, but the problem with that so often is that if we are not careful to remember what happened and why it happened and how it happened, then we are in grave danger of allowing it to happen again. And I think in some way, David is calling for their careful consideration and, and intentional remembrance and memorialization of the events of this day, lest it happen in Israel again. Remember, he is mostly saddened. His preeminent concern is that the glory of God, the glory, O Israel, your glory has been slain, that God is being mocked and God's people are being pressed down and persecuted. His preeminent concern is with the glory of God that should be on display through the victories of God's people. It is now being trampled underfoot by the uncircumcised Philistines. And David is intent as the leader of Israel not to allow it to happen again. And he says, it is because of the effects of sin and fallenness and wickedness among you that these things have happened. And he says, drink from this cup deeply and never forget how bitter it is so that you will be encouraged not to let it happen again. Encouraged to faithfulness. Friends, I think that's a lesson that we can all learn. As I, as I reflect on that, I often give you sports analogies. If you're not a sports person, my apologies. Uh, it's one of the only passions I have in life and hobbies that I have. I don't keep up. You can ask me what happened on the news last night. I have no idea, but I know what happened in the NFL. Um, Tom Brady is one of my favorite athletes. And you, you, I have no interest in debating his moral. I don't, I'm, not interested, I'm not talking about who he is as a person. But the reality is he's one of the greatest quarterbacks that's ever played in the NFL. The, the thing that fascinates me about Tom Brady is when he came out of college in 2000, after playing for the University of Michigan, he was virtually a nobody. And, and, and nobody particularly wanted him. He, he was not Cam Newton. Nobody was trading up and giving away draft picks and things in order to have the opportunity to draft him as soon as possible and to pay him the most money possible. Nobody really wanted him that much. 
He was taken in the sixth round. So he was drafted. Taken in the sixth round. And in the last 13 full seasons, I guess going on 15 now, but in 13 full seasons, six or seven trips to the Super Bowl, four of which have been won. Awards that cannot be measured. Clearly, one of the greatest that's ever played the game. But the thing that's fascinating about it is it is well documented that he never forgets, that he never forgets being a no-name that nobody particularly wanted. And he plays with a chip on his shoulder. And he uses it as fuel for the fire so that at 38 years old, they won yesterday. One of the oldest in the league, I think only second maybe to Peyton, one of the oldest in the league and is fixing to play for another AFC title and look to go to another Super Bowl. All I want you to see is that it is important sometimes to remember because when we are careful to think and to remember, then it is fuel for the fire to move forward and to, to not repeat the problems and the difficulties of the past. And so in this context, he is asking them to mourn thoughtfully. Secondly, as we see clearly in this text, he is exemplifying and encouraging that the children of Israel mourn graciously. We find in this lamentation of David an extraordinary grace and generosity. So much so that many Christians, they read these verses and they are prone to wonder whether or not David is even being truthful. In other words, they ask, how can he say such wonderful things about Saul? Perhaps this is... Uh, the same as some pie-in-the-sky epitaph that a preacher offers at a funeral of some wicked pagan person outside of the church in order to soothe a grieving family. Friends, that is not what is going on here. There is no reason to uh, wonder about the truthfulness of David. Rather, we should understand it to be truthful and honest and perhaps learn something from his grace and generosity in his mourning. He was not simply trying to ingratiate the people of Israel to himself, trying to schmooze them over by speaking good of their king. He was speaking the truth, and his, uh, his, his mourning was sincere. Um, to, to begin with, he makes no judgment about his eternal resting place. If you notice in, in, the, in the song here, in his lamentation as he grieves over Saul, who... It had turned from the Lord and was under the judgment of God. He makes no judgment about his spiritual estate or where he now resides. I had a, I had a faithful seminary professor that I loved that, that taught me very practical things. And one of the things he told me as a pastor is never preach anybody into heaven. Never preach them into hell either. At funerals, you know, it, it, it's, not, it's, not, it's not our place. It's not helpful. To, you know, this is not, that's not what's going on here. He's not preaching him into heaven. He's not making any judgments about where he rests. All of the details that David alludes to in this passage were in fact true. He was the glory of Israel. He was their king. And as their king, he led them in a mighty way. Notice he alludes to down in verse 22. He alludes to their military might and prowess. And if nothing else, Saul was head and shoulders literally among all of his peers. And God placed him as king over Israel and appointed him to this place of authority and dignity. And, and, and he experienced great military success so that he provided 
safety, stability. You know, there, there, was, there was a lot that they had to, uh, to, to be thankful for under his leadership. I don't think that he's trying to say anything that was untrue about, uh, I don't think that there's anything untrue about what David is saying here. It was a terrible day because now they would no longer have all of the, the blessings that flowed from God through Saul to the children of Israel. And I think here we find a great example of how it is that we can mourn the fallen. And I, and I mean that in two ways. Even those, and, and maybe including those, but not only those that have fallen physically in, into death, but those that have fallen spiritually into sin. You know, how, how is it that we grieve when religious leaders and pastors and men of position by God's providence in the church, when they fall into immorality and sin and when they, when they are found in some moral failure. See, friends, I think all too often we err by adding and heaping further abuse and shame upon them without acknowledging the graces of God that he has given to them. And I think what we find in David is a generosity to simply reflect upon and acknowledge and be grateful for the graces of God in Saul's life. That in some ways he was a good king, that he did some things that were helpful, that he, and he focuses on those things. After all, as I said a moment ago, it was by God's doing, wasn't it? that Saul was in the position that he was, that he had the authority he did and the respect and dignity of the people that he enjoyed. And as John Calvin said of this passage, listen, listen this, is, this is a good word, listen carefully. Since God elevated Saul to such dignity, that is reason enough for me to honor him. And then he goes on and he says, that is how greatly David esteemed the grace of God in a man who was so perverse. You know, how, how, do you, how do you respond to a wayward parent that has forsaken their family? How, how, do we, how do we deal with and mourn for those that have passed away and perhaps in great sin and wickedness? And friends, I think the best answer is to mourn graciously, to, to acknowledge whatever graces God had bestowed upon them in this life and to be thankful for them. And I think that he models and encourages that. But as I've alluded to already, that's very closely connected to, he wants them to mourn thankfully. And that's different. He wants to be gracious in his mourning, to acknowledge the graces of God in Saul's life. But then he wants to be thankful in his mourning for how those graces ultimately benefited him. And he even commands the children of Israel, look here in the text, to do this down in verse 24. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul. Why? Because he clothed you luxuriously in scarlet and he put ornaments of gold on your apparel. Those are, those are true realities. They experienced incredible wealth and prosperity and economic stability under his reign. And because of God's grace in Saul's life, even though he was perverse and wicked, he is calling them to mourn 
Because they are grateful for that grace and how it ultimately benefited them. And then he moves from instructing the Israelites to mourn in this way to exemplifying this type of mourning. Look down in the next verse. He says, how the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. And then he reflects on his own personal grief and how God's grace in Saul's life benefited him. One of the, one of the greatest graces of God in Saul's life was what? His son, Jonathan. For without Saul, there would have been no Jonathan. And Jonathan was David's closest friend. They had a covenant relationship with one another. It was Jonathan that would be his deliverer in an occasion where he actually saved his life and took up arms with him. And look at what he says. For Jonathan lies slain on your high places, and I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. This expression of his own personal grief. He was thankful. And this day, it, 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 meant the end of, it meant the end of that friendship. It meant the end of that relationship. He says, very pleasant have you been to me. And then he says, your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. And, and friends, I, I'm not going to spend much time here, but let me just note, there, you, listen, there are tons of sermons and uh, articulations that this text is the biblical justification for homosexuality. That this somehow is a sexual reference between David and Jonathan. I'm not going to spend a lot of time, but friends, I could not be further from the truth. I'm going to give you two realities. One, uh, it was not uncommon at all for men to have a different expression of their love for one another than what we experience in our 2016 Western, you know, Westernized culture and minds. And, and particularly, if you want to find this type of brotherly love one for another, it is not by my own experience, but I'm, I'm given to understand that one of the places that you can still find these types of expressions between men, even in our 2016 westernized culture, is in the military. For men that battle together and give their lives for one another and die together on the battlefield, they often spend more time with one another and love one another, not more, but in a different way than they love even their own spouses. Now, I'm not speaking from personal experience, but I'm given to understand that that's the case. And, and exegetically, however, and practically, I do not think that what he's saying is your love to me was better. It was extraordinary. It was not better than the love I could have found in a woman. David had wives, I mean, we, even to his fault. And, and we'll ultimately find him in great sin in, in, in his marital life and, and in his sexual life. This is not it, though. His point is to say that your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. It was a love that I could not find in an, a romantic love with a woman, in a companion love with a woman. This is a different type of love, a different type of companionship. So I don't think there's any... There is no reason whatsoever from this text to think that this is somehow a justification for what the rest of Scripture makes along with this abundantly clear that is an abomination before the Lord. But that's as much as I'm going to say. But see, David was thankful. In his mourning, he was remembering and showing and expressing great gratitude for the, how the grace of God in Saul's life ultimately benefited him personally. And this day was a day to be mourned because it was a day it, it was a day where those benefits would cease and for the children of Israel that he is commanding to be thankful that the wealth and prosperity in Israel under Saul's reign it would it would be gone the safety the military prowess the deliverance that he provided if you think back even in his own life as we studied in 1 Samuel right when 
He went and delivered the men of Jabesh-Gilead in a mighty military way. He and his son Jonathan, the safety, the deliverance, the stability, this day marked the death of these blessings. So he's asking them to mourn thoughtfully and graciously and thankfully, but I think even by structure of the whole, the whole lamentation, I think, he's, I think he's encouraging them and us, friends, as we grieve to mourn hopefully. To mourn, hopefully. You cannot, uh, one cannot leave this passage uh, without seeing, I think, the great hope that, that it offers. Because, because what we find is that the wicked king Saul is dead. And though the children of Israel are floundering on the seashore, if you will, without a leader and without stability and without military might and safety, what we know is that God is still at work in Israel, isn't he, friends? He has not forgotten his people and the virtue and integrity that we see in David here, it is an encouragement because he is soon, very soon, to take over the throne. So in part, the testimony of these verses and the virtue in David that it shows us is to encourage us that God has prepared one greater than Saul to come and lead his people. Now, friends, as we grieve, fast forward to 2016. The reason that structure encourages us to mourn, hopefully, now is because we're going to soon see David's frailty and sin and flesh. But just like when all seemed lost in Israel, God had prepared one greater than Saul to deliver and lead his people. Friends, for us, God has prepared one greater than David to protect and to lead and to provide for his people when all seems lost. So friends, when we grieve, when we mourn, let us do so with hope in Jesus Christ. For one day in his kingdom, he will wipe every tear from our eyes and there will be no more mourning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for... the encouragement of your word. Thank you for David's exemplary life at this point, whereby we are able to learn how to grieve biblically and faithfully. And I pray, God, that as we walk through the difficulties of this life, as we are grieved again and again because of sin and its result, I pray that you would help us to honor God as David did, to honor you with our mourning and with our grief. But God, mostly I pray that you would help us to mourn with the anticipation of what will come in Christ our Lord. God, thank you that you have prepared one greater than Saul and greater than David. One who will never fail. One whose kingdom shall never end. One whose authority shall never be compromised. Lord, thank you that you've sent us King Jesus. And God, may he be our hope as we grieve. God, may we trust in him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.